This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Be a lady tonight. All right, well, still may remain to be seen who's really going to get lucky on this deal. Caesars, they haven't had a lot of luck uh, since that big buyout. Did you just talk over the chairman the of the board? You just did. I did, okay. a little bit. Go ahead. Sorry, yeah. I just wanted to get to this exciting story. I know, story. I know. I, I know. apologize. Anyway, go ahead. All right, on behalf, are you demanding that on behalf of New Jersey? <laughs> <All right. laughs> yes. Anyway, Caesars, they got bought by El Dorado. We've got the story, and we've got some analysis. Chris Palmieri, our Los Angeles bureau chief, he joins us from that fine bureau on the West Coast. And Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist. Well, she's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Chris, I want to start with you. Give us a, a synthesis of the news here. Uh, well, this is the the minnow that ate the whale. I mean, <laughs> El Dorado five years ago had two, three properties. Uh, you know, basically a Reno uh, casino operator, which has always, you know, played second fiddle historically to Las Vegas. Now uh, they're the largest owner of casinos in the U.S., 60 properties, flagship ones, including, you know, Caesar's Palace, the Flamingo, Paris, and Las Vegas. So it's a big deal for the casino industry. All right. So let's talk about this. El Dorado shares, they're taking a hit, 12.5%. How is it, um, Tarla Chappelle, that, uh, that we actually saw the minnow eat the whale, <laughs> uh, if you will, and roll in, you know, Carl Icahn in all of this? Yeah, so it's another uh, Carl Icahn uh, playbook where if you looked at Caesars shares earlier this year, they were trading below $8. Um, Carl Icahn comes in, builds a big stake, starts pushing for, you know, the usual, thinks the company should sell itself, can get more money in a deal. Um, He gets three board seats at Caesars and helps install a new CEO who happened to be the CEO of Tropicana, another casino business that Icahn sold to El Dorado last year. Mm. And lo and behold, today we have a deal between Eldorado and Caesars, yes. So, um, and the deal's at about twelve seventy-five a share if you use uh, the price before today. Um, so, a significant premium. It also seems to be a lot higher than the price that. El Dorado was expected to pay. And remember, Caesars is still very much a very debt-laden company. Um, They came out of bankruptcy a couple years ago from that uh, infamous 2008 buyout. And, you know, it's it's a very risky deal for El Dorado. And I think shareholders are surprised that they're paying as much as they are for such a big company. 20 billion, 19, 20 billion of debt in terms of Caesars on the balance sheet, right? Yes. Roughly? Yeah. Well, and Chris, so much of that debt goes back to 2008. We've talked a lot about the private equity deals like Hilton that ended up actually doing pretty well from that boom. Caesars, not on that list in any way, shape, or form. The buyers, TBG and Apollo, they've gotten out of this to this point. But remind us why this was such a deal gone bad. Uh, a really high price at the top of the market is the short answer. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they started actually, they negotiated first in 2006. It took a while to close. Obviously, the world changed 2007, 2008. Uh, you know, the expectation was that the casinos were just cash machines uh, and competition heated up, consumers cut back. Uh, and because they had a lot of debt, they weren't able to refresh their properties to the extent. So when, uh, you know, what happens in the casino industry is, you know, it starts out in small towns, then it gets closer and closer to the big population centers as, as states get more comfortable with betting. And so the newer properties it, it cannibalize the older ones. 
I mean, is there, well, I just, this is kind of, so does, I guess, Icon cash out now? Is he done? Do we know? I it's mean, not it's clear like, what it he's doing like with it. his uh, his uh, his shares that he'll get in this deal. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tara. You come on in on that. Well, too. yeah, Icon put out a statement today, and it's actually kind of funny. He's you know commending the board, and he says, "I rarely do this. Compliment the board for their good work." But really, he had three of those board seats, so right. I think everyone kind of know <laughs> where this job, was heading. <laughs> you know good who job, was super Wade. smart? I was. Uh, so, Chris, I mean, also interesting backstory here is that the Fertitas were also around this uh, as recently as last year, right? Uh, you, you may be mixing your fertitas a little. There's the the UFC. Oh, fertitas this. Oh, I'm sorry. This is the Tillman, Tillman fertitas. fertitas. They're oh, actually yes. cousins. Uh, this is Landry's start... uh, Tillman fertita. I right, apologize. Exactly. They all actually date to a, a sort of a shady casino in Galveston, Texas. Oh, there but, you go. Um, See, thanks for bailing uh, me out there, Chris. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to piss off the Las Vegas uh, the fertitas. Any of the fertitas, uh, martial so, artists. So, um, t- anyway. Yeah, go um, ahead. Yeah, so you know he had tried uh, to do, and you know this is kind of a little trend we have where people uh, kind of try to swallow up larger companies to run them. You saw that with the uh, MGA, uh, right. Trying to take over Mattel in that. Uh, unfortunately, it's not been working for these entrepreneurs. But it, you know he wouldn't have been a bad operator. The properties that uh, Tillman has, uh, Landry Seafood and Golden Nugget Casinos, are, are very comparable to Caesars. But does that mean potentially, since Golden Nugget was initially interested, Tara, what are you hearing on the M&A front? Is there anybody else who might come in and do a challenge here? I don't know. I mean, I think at this price, the market really really isn't expecting another buyer. I think this was a lot higher than most expected to see. And Eldorado is uh, estimating about $500 in synergies, which is pretty high. So I think some analysts are a little bit skeptical of that. And already Moody's put out a statement saying, you know, this is going to be a really leveraged company. So I'd be surprised if anyone comes on the top here. Yeah. Like, here, have it. (laughs) Or have at it. (laughs) And Chris, per the hangover, we should remind our listeners that this wasn't the original Caesar's Palace. Caesar did not actually uh, live there. Oh, no. Really? It's actually, this is a little trivia. It's actually not Caesar's apostrophe S. It's it's Caesar's in the sense of all man is a Caesar. Floral. Ah, Like a floral kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So full of good information. All right. (laughs) Chris Palmieri, L.A. Bureau Chief, all things entertainment, gaming, etc. He joined us from our L.A. Bureau. And Tara LaChapelle, deals columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. She was here with us in New York. El Dorado down 12.4%. Caesars right now up 14.5%. So we definitely do want to talk about large caps in particular because they're definitely outperforming small caps this year. Our next guest has some thoughts on that. Norm Conley is CEO and Chief Investment Officer at JAG Capital Management. Roughly $1.3 billion in assets under manager based in St. Louis in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. We want to jump into names, but I do have one broad question to ask you, uh, Norm, is that when you look at the large cap space, the S&P 500, we're looking at a you know, PE of like 19.3, that's pretty pricey. And I know that's the overall market, but doesn't that say to you that we got to pull back a little bit? Well, I think um, when you look at valuations, uh, you do have to look at them in context. So the way we look at them, first of all, is in context to what are other assets trading at. So I'm going to oversimplify, if you just forgive me. I can go out today and I can buy, um, I could buy a 10-year treasury at roughly 50 times earnings. Um, or I can buy the S&P on a trailing basis between 18 and 19 times earnings or on a going forward basis between 16 and 17 times earnings, uh, paying about a, a just under a 2% dividend yield. So when I look at things in that context, again, assuming, and it's a big assumption, that interest rates are going to stay relatively benign for some period of time, um, I don't think valuations are especially demanding on stocks right here. 
Okay. Good. All right. So let's uh, dig into some sectors and some names here. Chip stocks, they're always top of mind for us. What do you like there in terms of specific names? Because I feel like it's not a bucket that you can broadly invest in right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, chip stocks are uber cyclical. So in the old days, uh, we used to call copper Dr. Copper because it had a PhD on the economy. And I think, uh, you know, <laughs> right, in the last several years. Right, it told us a lot. Yeah. It told us a lot, right. And in the last few years, I think uh, the term uh, or the phrase Dr. Chip has come into uh, popularity. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a super cyclical sector with a lot of cross currents. I think generally um, there are some really compelling valuations. So getting back to the valuation question, um, no matter where you come down on valuations for the broader market, there are some, <clears throat> we think, some compelling valuations in chips. Um, and, of course, that also depends on where you think you are in the cycle because right. it is a cyclical sector. But it's specific. You like AMAT. You like Marvel Technologies. You like Qualcomm. That's right. We do. Yeah, we think uh, we think all of those, you know, talking about EMAT in particular, yeah, we think it's got a really wide moat in terms of technology. Um, we do think, particularly relative to chip equipment, that we're either at or near uh, the trough for the cycle that that company is related to. Uh, and if we're right, um, we think uh, the next year to two years for, for that company should be pretty good. Talk to me about Ulta Beauty. I mean, it's down today pretty markedly, 3.5% owing to the Amazon effect. These are two names that that you like independent uh, of each other. How much do you worry about Amazon when it comes to Ulta? I've made the mistake in the past six or seven years uh, of worrying too much uh, about Ulta being overly affected by Amazon. In other words, I've owned it uh, at least two other times in the last six or seven years and incorrectly sold it because of that fear. This Uh, stock is, we marvel that it is often among the biggest gainers or losers in any given day. It moves around a lot. It does. Uh, Today's news, which, uh, you know, is that Amazon, you guys have covered it. Amazon is getting into the professional uh, beauty supply business. Um, I I really don't think it should be affecting Alta the way it is. So Hmm. I do think that the perceived negativity is probably a bit overblown. I mean, I will say somebody who buys a lot of stuff, you know, there's something about going into Sephora or an Ulta and you get to play around with stuff. And I think that's going to be a hard model to overcome. But I will right. say if you're buying it the second time around and Amazon can do it and get it to you tomorrow and maybe right. even at a better price, that's right. where I think could they be can threat. really pull, you know, pull right. out a market. Uh, talk to us about Salesforce because that's a name we've talked a lot mm-hmm. about. There's a big story in Bloomberg Business Week a couple weeks ago about Benioff and sort of trusting his gut obviously doing some big deals, the Tableau right. uh, acquisition. Why do you like Salesforce here? Uh, well, we think, you know, this, we like the deal with Tableau. So mm-hmm. we think that solidifies their position in enterprise software. And really, uh, as Salesforce has grown over the last few years, they strategically have, have had to make a decision. And it really comes down to do they want to continue to uh, get closer and closer to competing with Microsoft, who's right. the big gorilla in enterprise. And we think this shows that they do. And they probably had to do a deal of that, of that sort. So we like it. Uh, we like the company and what they're doing. We think they have a great position in enterprise software. 
Hey, Norm, just got about 30 seconds here. PayPal's another one. It's up like 38% this year. Uh, I feel like despite all the threats in the financial sector and other payment services coming in, they really still kind of hold their own. Right. Well, with uh, one 22-year-old and two teenagers who say, Venmo me, please Venmo me <laughs> as a verb, uh, and all of our all of our friends with similar situations, uh, not to over-Peter Lynch it, but we really like PayPal and what they're doing in digital payments. To just see it being used, right? Right. There you go. All right, Norm Conley, Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer for JAG Capital Management, about $1.3 billion in assets. He's based out in St. Louis. He's a Cardinals fan and a domer, a proud Notre Dame grad, uh, joining us here in New York. Give me a career as a buccaneer. It's the life of a fighter for me. So we are going to talk a little bit about trade pirates in particular. The headline on our story is the U.S. was a trade pirate. And of course, it was written by our Bloomberg New Economy editorial director. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I always love your perspective. His name is Andy Brown. Did I not say it? No. Oh, Andy Brown. I do this to everybody. (laughs) You're part of the family. Sorry, Andy. It's actually a a true sign of affection because she only doesn't introduce the people that she knows and loves. At least that's what I keep telling myself. Because it's just like, let's go, let's go. I'm blushing. They can't tell this on radio. Um, Andy... It's good to have you here. Thanks. Great to be here. And I have to say, when Jason and I talk about this, we read your stories and we're like, oh, man, I hadn't thought about that. And everybody should think about this. Tell us what you wrote about. Yeah. So I just think it's worth reminding ourselves that China is not a uniquely bad trade actor. And anybody who's been to the boots cotton mill in Lowell, Massachusetts, knows that the entire industrial revolution in the United States, which began in the textile industry, came from mechanized spinning and weaving looms that were stolen from Britain. So the U.S. was a pirate too? The U.S. was a pirate too, and not just that. I mean, these days there's all kinds of talk about what Mike Pence calls the whole of government, Chinese government threat to the United States, and much is made of Chinese talent programs as an underhand way of China getting hold of U.S. industrial and military secrets. But guess what? The United States had exactly the same programs in place 200 years ago. It pioneered these and lured over British scientists and engineers with financial and other incentives to come with their families and help the Industrial Revolution. So, you know, having having said that, having said that, however, um, you know, that method of development just won't work anymore. Mm-hmm. And China keeps falling back on this and, say, and keeps saying, well, you know, we're a poor, we're a developing nation, give us a break type thing. And, um, you know, unfortunately, China is too big. It's too influential, it's too powerful, it's too ambitious to industrialize and to behave in a way that every single emerging economy has since the United States. Japan did it, Taiwan did it, South Korea did it, Singapore did the same thing. I'm afraid it stops with China. It is too big, and its policies have now distorted the global trading system to such an extent that they threaten to blow the whole thing up. All right, so we are, with that backdrop, that very optimistic... Uh, the backdrop, we are headed, you know, within days of a of meeting between these two heads of these superpowers, President Trump and, and President Xi. Given that that background, what are you expecting? What is this going to look like when these guys get together at a very eventful G20? You know, the gulf between these two sides is so enormous. And 
a single meeting, albeit a summit meeting, between Xi and Trump is not going to fix the problem. I mean, fundamentally, the United States exaggerates the threat from China along the lines that I've just described. It's yeah. not a uniquely bad actor. And it, and, and, and it does this to justify a set of economic sanctions that go well beyond any reasonable punishment for Chinese trade infractions. It starts to look like this isn't about trade. This is about a Cold War and, and taking down the Chinese economy. For its part, there is very little soul-searching in China about the root causes of this trade conflict. I mean, China just doesn't seem to have understood that this isn't just about Trump. It isn't just about trade surpluses. This is about its industrial structure. And the whole world, Japan, the, the EU, you know, Korea, all of these countries have exactly the same problems with China. You know, it's interesting. There's a line that I, I wrote down from your story. Fitting a rising China into the global trading order is a central challenge of our era. And right, how do we, where do we place China, right? How do we treat it? How do we deal with it going forward? Well, that's, that's just it, because it's unique. Nothing like China has ever happened to the global economy before. So yeah, I mean, it's true that China does have tens of millions of people living in poverty and tens of millions of more who could be tipped back mm -hmm. into poverty tomorrow. Uh, you know, they're one illness away, one a industrial accident away, one flood away from going back to poverty. Um, you know, per capita income in China is about one-sixth of what it is uh, in the United States. On the other hand, China has cities like Shanghai, 20 million people, you know, who have living standards that approximate those in a southern European country. Creation of billionaires, isn't it the highest? Billion yeah. Billionaires, minting billionaires yeah. faster than any other country on earth, controls whole industries, sets an economic, global economic agenda through Belt and Road Initiative. So it can't, you know, it has to start taking more responsibility for its actions rather than posing as this defender of free trade while doing very little to adjust the fundamentals, you know, of its own skewed economy. Well, you know, and one of the other things you point out in your piece this week is about talent. And, and we talked a, a little bit with uh, Anuru Grana, all of our colleague on the BI side, who's done a study of this. Help us understand the talent piece of this, because I feel like for many people, especially those of our listeners who are working in tech companies and other types of companies, these H-1B visas, I mean, this is a critical part of the talent pool. And this is getting caught in the trade crossfire in some Yeah, way. this is where this is where Trump's trade policies are going to be so disruptive and destructive to the US yeah. economy. I mean, whatever whatever tr whatever damage China is doing to the US economy through its trade policies, I think is is going to be exceeded by the damage that the US will be doing to its own economy if it pursues this kind of policy. America needs talent. Silicon Valley is built obviously on talent that right. comes in from places like China and India. So it's losing now its, its, its greatest scrutiny of H-1B visas means that students are much more reluctant to come to the United States. And by the way, the, the education industry in the United States is a huge money earner. I mean, right. tens of billions of dollars a year. We just right? did a show at the Harvard Business School, and this was one of the things that they talked about, that this pushback against Chinese immigrants and so on, like what it means for entrepreneurship and ultimately growth in our economy here in the United States well, if you keep we, pushing back. And we talked about the Red Scare when it comes to uh, medical research, right. cancer research uh, specifically. So what do we do, Andy? So you understand, okay, so I think you set the stage really well. So what's the approach that needs to be done with China? If they're not coming up and being kind of accountable for who they are today, 
how do we get them to that point? Well, clearly not through tariffs, even though most of the world believes, as the United States does, that China is gaming the system. Right. Tariffs are not the way. I mean, people keep t- talking about this, and, it's, and it, it, it's no less true for the repetition is that you need a coalition uh, if you want to really fix the problems in China, or at least try to ad- or, or at least address them in a, me- in a meaningful way. And that's the opposite approach to the one that the Trump administration has taken. Right. I, I don't know. It's I love a, this guy. I know, I know. And, and But you've also said that you don't ultimately expect something to come out of G20, right? You know, this is gonna, the, the other thing we haven't talked about is Huawei. And Huawei is the big sticking point. I mean, the, 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 right. the question here is, can she really negotiate yeah. with a gun against his head? And that's the way he looks at this threat by, by Trump to kill Huawei. On the other hand, Trump has dug himself into a big hole here, having put up, having put declared you know Huawei to be a, a right. national security right. threat. Right. You know how does it then? How does he then go back and say, actually, we got that wrong. It's fine. We can do business it's hard with these for guys. Either of them to like back off. And it goes to this broader thing we've talked to you a lot about, Andy, which is this decoupling of the U.S. and Chinese economies. Andy Brown. See, I didn't have to introduce him because we all know we, we all just know learned something. Is. It's the He's guy we the, learned something from. The also. editorial <laughs> director of Bloomberg New Economy. Always good to have Andy Appreciate Brown. It. Great to be here with us. Thank, Thank you. you. You've been struck by a smooth criminal. All right. Well, this is a must read in uh, really an issue of must reads. It's the heist issue. And this is the first taste we're getting of it. It's on the terminal today. The polygamists accused of scamming the U.S. out of $500 million. If that doesn't get you in. Wait, what? I'm not sure what will. (laughs) Exactly. David Voriakos, U.S. legal reporter. He co-wrote this story. Joel Weber is also here. He is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, of course. So, David, uh, give us the 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 movie pitch for this because this feels like a movie. What what's the essence of this story? Uh, this is a story about a couple of brothers in Utah who are polygamists and they have several wives and many children. And uh, the Internal Revenue Service and the Justice Department accused them of defrauding the U.S. government out of more than five hundred million dollars. And their partner in this was an Armenian immigrant in Los Angeles who's been accused of crimes for many years. And uh, the government says that they laundered $134 million to Turkey. So, Joel, I, okay, i got to take a step back because I'm thinking the reporters come to you and they're like, oh, so we have this idea, these two <laughs> brothers in Utah, and they're polygamists, and, and you're like, done. Yeah, sold. <laughs> Look at the, the, the words here, right, in the headline, polygamy, scam, $500 million. Like, yeah, yeah you got yeah, me. Yeah. And to be clear, you know, Accused is also in there, yes. innocent until proven guilty. To be fair, yeah. but you know this is a this is a news hook. This this case is actually going to bring come to court in July in Salt Lake City, uh, and it's one that I think it has all this drama to it, but it also has this great business side because th- this group is a, a an offshore offshoot of uh, the the Mormons, mm-hmm. and they are known as the Order. And according to our reporting, uh, thanks to David Ford, you know, there's elements of organized crime that the government believes that this organization has. 
they also have amazing sophistication. The guy that David was referring to actually has a PhD, one of the brothers does. And so the scam that they, they're accused of is a biodiesel credit scam. So this is not like your entry level, like kind of like, you know, some kind of betting thing in yeah, New yeah. Jersey. It's like these guys actually orchestrated something that seems to be sort of incredible. And, and David, can you give us a sense of how the mechanics of that transaction seem to have worked? Right. So um, about a decade ago, Congress passed a law to encourage the production of biofuels um, using ethanol or um, animal fat or used cooking grease. And uh, the law requires refiners to mix that into um, their transportation fuel, and um, that would increase the reliance on uh, renewable fuels. And right, and that was an era when oil was going sky high, and we were concerned about the viability and resources. This was really before fracking, right? So this was an important government move. Right, and it's a standard that's still in place, and right. the production standards are there for refiners and for big oil companies. And um, the producers like... Um, Washaki Renewable Energy, which is what we wrote about, uh, that company in Utah is owned by Jacob and Isaiah Kingston, and um, they were eligible for a dollar a gallon um, tax credit from the Internal Revenue Service. And essentially what the government has accused them of doing is not producing the uh, type of biodiesel fuel that they say they're producing and engaging in a conspiracy with a bunch of other fuel producers around the country in which they uh, created phony records to say that the fuel was at a certain standard that it wasn't actually at. And so it involved a very complicated sequence of events where they moved loads of fuel that weren't what they actually said they were. and they Including attest- to foreign destinations right. even, right? including offshore. And, um, and getting wealthy in the process. And um, yes, uh, the order um, encourages... Uh, and pretty much demands that its members share its wealth with the order and not get wealthy personally. But in this case, Jacob uh, Kingston got tremendously wealthy and lived in a large mansion and drove fast cars. And uh, his- At which point you build a wall immediately, right. Right. <laughs> which is in the story as well. And, no cars behind yeah. here. And uh, Lev Derman in Los Angeles uh, drove hmm. a $1.7 million Bugatti. and Which... Uh, that that's when you know attention lands on you. Right. It's like, wait, where did that Bugatti come from? And right. and he was actually investigated, right, David? But they actually folded that case. Right. They had seized the Bugatti, um, and uh, Derman's lawyer, Mark Garagos, who's a big celebrity lawyer, uh, managed to uh, get his assets back, including the Bugatti. Um, and uh, there's quite a bit in the in the criminal case about how the money moved to Turkey. And uh, Jacob Kingston and Lev Derman invested in businesses in Turkey with money that uh, the government says was laundered from uh, their fuel business. Right. And underneath all of this, there are some phenomenal details that we can't get into right now, but it's a must read for sure. It's on the Bloomberg. You have to go to the Bloomberg or go to Bloomberg.com or. Or the pick up the magazine yeah. uh, later this week. David Goriakos, he wrote the story with Jesse Hyde. It is really a, a work of art in many ways. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, he'll be back with us throughout the week talking about the heist issue. It's a tradition now, right? Um, are we making it one? Yeah. <laughs> like, once, you, once you have stories like this, it's like, yeah. how can we not do that? Exactly. I just can't wait till it comes out on Amazon or Netflix because this go. story is unbelievable. 
I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Uh, Darley Dakey is with us. He's Chief Executive Officer at New Market Wealth Management, joining us on the phone from Costa Mesa, California. Hey, nice to have you here with Jason and myself. So what's going on in Costa Mesa? I'm curious what you guys, when you get together, have a meeting at your offices, what are the kind of top stories, top macro ideas that you're talking about? Well, for us, the questions that we're getting from our investors and clients is, my goodness, how long can this market last? (laughs) Uh, That seems to be the sentiment um, from most people we talk to, if for no other reason than this has been going on for an awfully long time. So uh, that kind of dovetails into our thinking, which is we feel it's a good time to be diversified, not to try to time the market to get out of it, but there are a lot of other ways to make money other than concentrating on the handful of securities that have made the most money in the last five years. So we're, we're talking mostly about diversification. And so as you look at the, the market so far this year, you know, what do you look at as kind of the bright spots from a, from a sector perspective? And what are the spots where you think, mm, I'm not so sure that we're going to get in there for the balance of the year? Well, you know, that's, it's really, this year, of course, the markets have done well broadly, yeah. and that's a better sign for investors. You know, when you look in the last five years, and most of our clients certainly are longer-term investors and clients and thinking about their families, because we work exclusively with families and what's going to happen with their family going forward, when you look at that data, uh, six stocks have annualized at 27%, and a balanced portfolio is annualized at 4 And so that's not really good for most investors to have had success by concentrating. And so what we're trying to do is look beyond that again. And there are lots of other places, you know, uh, 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 non-correlated assets like BDCs or REITs or MLPs or things that produce income that are not just stock-oriented are good places for people to look to get diversification and make money. Right. So, so Daryl, talk to us about some of those alternatives, because I feel like that's been a, a bit of a holy grail. And, and we've seen, you know, depending on how wealthy you are, like you have better access, candidly, uh, to some of those alternatives. Are those coming a little bit, dare I say, sort of down market or, or more mass market in, in your estimation? Some are, um, and some are, are probably to the benefit of the mass market. And some may be added to the mass market uh, distribution that I would still nonetheless want to stay away from. Um, Some of the the traditional alternative strategies that one might hear about, private equity, private real estate, uh, hedge strategies, some of those are really very difficult to implement into a liquid mass market environment. Um, but again, that doesn't mean that investors can't find alternatives to stocks, and that's right. really what that may mean. And so there, again, uh, business development corporations, which are direct lending vehicles, uh, master limited partnerships, infrastructure funds, REITs, 
those are all strategies that are traded daily and one can get yeah. liquidity at, at small amounts of money and get some diversification. There have been attempts over the years to add hedge strategies and they haven't worked very well in the in the liquid markets, nor have private equity. In fact, there's a big article today about Vanguard looking to get into it. So I yeah. think there's a push to get into it. But actually executing in those markets can be difficult because of their very nature. Well, and, and talk to me a little bit more about BDCs, because that's an area where we've seen a lot of the kind of brand name private equity firms go into pretty heavily. You know, you can invest in a BDC and a lot of the brand name uh, big bulge bracket uh private equity firms at this point. Do you like those at this point? Well, we like some of them. You know, like anything, there are, there's, you know, there, there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And in BDCs, it's pretty much the same thing. There are, there are some very good uh, business development corporations. And one of the main reasons we like them is it's a debt instrument that is often senior on the balance sheet for most corporations. So there's right. a little more security to them. Now, there frequently is leverage. And again, the, the better BDC companies have less leverage. But at the same time, you know, with a little bit of, um, well, let's say added on risk, you're also getting paid for it. You get six to 700 basis points of yield above the 10-year treasury. We like that. We think it's a worthy risk to be diversified amongst quality BDCs, again, even for smaller investors. So I got to ask you, just going back to, I know what you said about like the FANG names, uh, Daryl, but I'm just curious. I mean, Facebook's up almost 50% this year. Apple, 26%. Netflix up 38%. Uh, Microsoft up 36%. Google, mm, just about 8%. I mean, I feel like we've been having these conversations for several years, consecutive years of, okay, it's time to you know bail out of these names. It's not good to be so uh, exposed to just a handful of names that are moving the overall market. And yet... They are your outperformers uh, consistently. Well, it, they sure are, and, and those numbers you you mentioned are pretty doggone good. And you know, I'd like to have some of that. But here again, I think it requires a little common sense, um, and not don't take the bait. In other words, how many years ago? I've been doing this for thirty four years. How many years in the last thirty four years have I identified really great companies where the CEOs of those companies have been on? Uh, the cover of every magazine. I'm, most recently, I think of General Electric as dominating the investment world, the largest market cap company in the world. And now, it's a very different conversation. The companies you mentioned are very, very good companies. And you should have them in your portfolio. I agree. We have them in our portfolios. But the question is, is that what you want to dominate your portfolio? Right. Are you wanting to take the bet now for your portfolio? Because when you concentrate in a handful of anything, it can go badly. And it can go badly for a period of time, which would be detrimental to your ability to do what you're doing now going forward. And that's how we think about preserving wealth for our clients. Daryl Dakey, excuse me, is Chief Executive Officer of New Market Wealth Management. He joined us on the phone from Costa Mesa, California. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.